Well, amen. My word of welcome. We're so glad that you're here. We want to welcome those who are worshiping with us online today. Glad that you could be here. Now, we talked about Lent, and we talked about uh, that Ash Wednesday service coming up. We're going to be doing a new series in Lent. I hope you'll come and participate in that, learn more about it, maybe. And uh, I, I was reminded, my wife reminded me this morning that years ago we were serving a church, and one of the staff members got a creative idea for a children's object lesson. And she had this bag, and she brought it up, and inside she pulled out this stuff that kind of was wadded all up. It was gray, and it made a ball. And she held it up, and she showed it to the children. And she said, this is 40 days of Lent. I mean, think about it. If you're a kid, that's what it sounds like to you, right? And so she was explaining it to them. I thought that was really clever. Some of y'all hadn't gotten that yet. Get somebody to explain it to you. It came out of the dryer, okay? 40 days of Lent. All right. Now, look, we got a long way to go and a short time to get there, so let me just go ahead and jump into this. Several years ago, my associate minister and I went to clergy promise keepers in Atlanta, Georgia. A couple in the church sponsored us. We went up there together. We were excited about going. It was in February. It was really cold outside. It was spitting snow when we went up that way. And, you know, I carry chapstick with me all the time. I think most preachers have chapstick. I've just noticed this. I have other friends who are preachers. They have chapstick. I've also notice that preachers, most of them have a hiatal hernia. I think maybe when they get ordained, something happens. I don't know, but it just seems to be that we all have a hiatal hernia. So I was putting that chapstick on my lips because I thought, well, I'll be fine. I got chapstick. But I got up the south side of Atlanta, and my lips were really bothering me, and they were red and swollen. I couldn't figure out what was going on. So I stopped at a drugstore, and I went into the pharmacy, and I went back to the pharmacist, and I said, hey, listen, I'm having trouble. See my lips? I don't know what to do. I'm using chapstick all the time. And she looked at me, and she said, oh, yeah, you better go to the doctor. He's going to have to check you out. And so I, I got, she said, here, get you some Carmex. So I got some Carmex, and I was just rubbing that Carmex all over my lips, and we were traveling on up to Atlanta. And I thought it would get better, but it didn't get better. And so when we got up there, I called home. I was starting to take Tylenol. I mean, my lips were bothering me. I called home, and I told Laura about my lips. And then together we solved the mystery. Our three-year-old daughter, Elizabeth, she said, had just broken out with chicken pox. Now, don't be getting ahead of me, okay? That's what happened. I had kissed Laura goodbye. I had kissed Catherine, I mean Elizabeth goodbye before I left the house. And now I had the herpes virus on my lips. So I called the doctor at home, and I told him what had gone on, and I told him, I'm here at the pharmacy. I've got a pharmacist. I've got a number. Here's what I want you to do. Tell him what I need, and let's get me some medicine. And I explained it all to the pharmacist so he would know what was going on. Now, I'm standing back there at the pharmacy, and I'm waiting on the pharmacist to give me the medicine. And while I'm waiting for the herpes virus to go away, my associate decides to come in to check on me. And he bounces back to the pharmacy, and he says, did you figure out what's wrong with your lips? And I said, yeah, I did. I've got the herpes virus. And my associate minister, my young, foolish associate minister, <laughs> looks at the pharmacist and says, can I catch it? <laughs> to which the pharmacist replied, 
Not unless you kiss him. I said, just go back and get in the truck. You're not helping, okay? I want you to picture this. I'm at clergy promise keepers. I'm with my associate minister. I'm being treated for the herpes virus, and it's Valentine's Day. <laughs> you talk about a mess getting messier. That's what I want to talk about today. Just having Valentine's Day this past week reminded me of that story. But, you know, I had another thought as well. It's hard to clean up a mess when you don't know what it is. And so today, if you're in the middle of a mess, this sermon is for you. Today, I want to talk about how to avoid making the mess messier. If you look at 1 Samuel chapter 24, there's a story there that took place about 1,000 B.C. It's the story of David after he becomes king, before he becomes king, and actually he's just a little shepherd boy. And one day Samuel, the prophet, shows up at his house, and he told his father, I'm going to anoint one of your sons. He's going to be the king. And so David was anointed king of Israel when he was just a shepherd boy. But the problem was that he was just a shepherd boy, and they already had a king, right? So now King Saul is on the throne, but they've got two kings. David was one of eight sons of Jesse. Most of his brothers were at war with the Philistines. David was kind of like a runner. He would take food up from his daddy, would give it to him, and take it to his brothers. Then he would get there. He would check on the battle to see how things were going, and then he would go back and report to his dad. So he got up there, and he saw that the Philistines were on one slope, and the Israelites were on another slope. And when I went to Israel, they took us out to a place they thought this might have occurred. And down in the valley, there's a big giant down there by the name of Goliath. Now, the Bible describes Goliath as over nine feet tall back in those days, okay? Now, that's over two feet taller than anybody pretty much who plays professional basketball player, basketball. And he was dressed in an armament that weighed 200 pounds. And he had a bronze helmet and iron leggings. He carried a spear that was six feet long, and the tip of the spear weighed 25 pounds. He had a huge shield to protect him, and then he had a little guy in front of him with another shield to protect him as well so that he wouldn't get hurt. This guy strutted down to the valley that day, and he said to the Israelites, you just send somebody down, one man to fight me. Whoever wins the battle, then their country will be victorious. Now, let me tell you, you're never going to face a bigger giant than Goliath because the Israelites were scared to death. David had just come to bring the food, and he said, well, what's happening? And they started to tell him, and he looked down in the valley, and he saw Goliath. And David said, who is that uncircumcised Philistine who's taunting the gods, uh, the God of Israel? And they started to tell him who it was, and he said, well, who's going to fight? And they said, we hadn't had any volunteers stand up yet, go down and take on that giant. And David said, well, let me fight. So they carried him to Saul, who was the commander of the army. And Saul looked at David, and he said, well, how in the world do you think you're going to fight that big giant? You're just a little kid. And David said, I'll tell you how. One day I was taking care of my daddy's sheep. And he said, a bear came in and got one of those sheep in his mouth. And I chased after that bear, and I got the sheep out. And then by the strength of God, I tore that bear apart and killed him with my bare hands. 
And he said, there was another day that a lion came into the sheep, and, and I saw that sheep, and I remembered what God did with the bear. And he said, with the strength of God, I was able to kill that lion as well. And he said, if God can protect me from a bear and a lion, he can protect me from a giant. Now, Saul was in a dilemma. He needed to send somebody down there to fight, and there weren't any volunteers. At least this was a warm body willing to go down there. So when his brother saw what he was going to do, he said, go get him, David. His brothers got together, and they said, well, look, if you're going to fight, let us at least help you with the armor. And they start putting that big heavy armor on David and getting him ready and trying to teach him how to fight. And he can't even move in that stuff. Finally, he said, take this stuff off of me. I don't know how to fight this way. And then he went and, and he went down to the brook and he got a, a few smooth stones and he put them in a pouch. And then he ran down to the battle. Now, I, it's always interesting to me when you read that in the Bible because, you know, David could have stood there and looked at that giant and the longer he looked at that giant, the taller he would have gotten. That's what we'd do, wouldn't it? I mean, the whole army's afraid to go. Maybe I ought to rethink this. Maybe this is not the smartest choice that I could make. But David didn't do that. The reason he didn't do that is because he had confidence in God. Now, listen. What happens is that God gives you and me a challenge, and we can either accept it or not accept it. But here's the point. When he gives us a challenge, then what he calls on us to do is trust him. And he gives us all we'll need to be victorious. And when we accept that challenge in his name and depend on him, then he gives us a victory. And that victory is what we build on the next time he gives us a new challenge. It's something we've never done before. We're afraid of it. We don't know how to do it, but God has called us to do it. And I remember, I remember what he's done. So I'm going to go. I'm going to be faithful, and I'm going to accept it. So now it's a bear, and now it's a lion, and now it's Goliath, the giant. And he runs down there, and Goliath stands up there, and he says, this afternoon, he, first of all, he starts laughing. He said, you just sent a kid to face me. And then he says this. He says, before the sun sets, the beast of the earth and the fowls of the air are going to devour his body. In other words, once I kill him, he's going to be laying out here dead, and then they're going to pick his body apart because of that. Now, I don't know if you know it or not, and I'm, not, I'm no expert on this, but this is one of the earliest recordings of trash talking I've ever found right here. You didn't know that, did you? You thought that was something new, huh? It's right here in the Old Testament. And so David looks at Goliath. He doesn't back down a bit. He says, you've come with a spear and a sword, but I've come in the name of the Lord. And today, this battle belongs to him. And then he goes on. He said, before the sun sets this afternoon, the very fowls of the air and the beasts of the field about which you speak are going to devour your body. So there, big giant, just take that. How about that? Now that is trash talking, y'all. I don't care what you say. Do you remember how that little fella faced that giant? He took a stone and he put it in his sling and he started to swing it around the top of his head and then he released it and that stone hit the giant right between the eyes and he fell dead. And when he released that stone and hit the giant right between the eyes and he died, all the Philistines ran away. Wouldn't you? Your giant, your champion's out there, and the shepherd boy killed him. No telling what those other soldiers can do, right? And so what happens is 
that they start seeing that God is God. That, it's not about David. It's about giving God, the God of the Israelites, the glory. It's about, here's what my God can do. I want you to know my God. That's what it's all about. And that victory that we see is through the challenges of life. I don't know what kind of mess you're facing today, but I want you to think back in your life to the messes that God has gotten you out of, to the challenges that he's given you, to the times when he's called on you to do something you didn't want to do, you were afraid to do it. You, you, the only thing that made you do it was just trying to be obedient to God. But you had confidence in him. And because of that, the next time, you had confidence in him again. And the next time, and even though it was new, it becomes easier when you trust the Lord. And so that's what David did. And then he went back to tend his sheep. Now, word got out about David killing Goliath because the whole army saw it. And everybody in the country knows about it now. But people aren't talking about King Saul anymore. In fact, Samuel writes this. In everything he did, he had great success because the Lord was with him. When Saul saw how successful he was, he was afraid of him. But all of Israel and Judah loved David because he led them in their campaigns. And the interesting idea is here, when somebody leads, it doesn't really matter if they're the leader or not. When they stand up and lead, other people just naturally want to follow them. And it wasn't that David wanted to be known or had a big ego or wanted everybody to be impressed with him. He was just being obedient to God. He was just trying to help the people. And when he would go out and lead in campaigns, he was just doing it so that God might be glorified. And so what happens is that David becomes a leader and, and the people look to him. And now perhaps they're thinking, well, he could be our next king. And sure enough, that's going to happen. And Saul realizes he's got a problem on his hands. Now, he tries to figure out a way to control David. And so what he comes up with, he says, you know what? I'm going to get him to marry one of my daughters. If he'll marry one of my daughters, then I can kind of control him because he'll be my son-in-law. Then I can keep him close, keep your friends close and your enemies closer, right? And so he decides to do that. So he goes to David. He says, would you like to marry one of my daughters? I mean, it's a big deal. I mean, he's a king, right? And David responds like this. He said, oh, oh, king. He said, listen, I'm not worthy to marry one of your daughters. I come from a lowly family. I'm nothing special. I, I just wouldn't feel comfortable doing it. It's a great honor, and I appreciate it, but no thanks. Well, when the world gets, word gets out about that, now they already love David. And what did he do? Do you hear about how humble David is? Do you hear about what he did? He had a chance to be the king's son-in-law. Marry one of his daughters. He turned it down. Boy, I love that guy. He's great. I tell you, there's nobody like him. And so Saul goes to David, and he tries to get him to do it. But, but he doesn't want to do it. But then what happens is that Saul's daughter, one of them, falls in love with David. And then he says, now I'm going to try this again. Do you want to marry her? And they said, yeah, I'd like to marry her. We're in love. And so he said, well, the price that you have to pay to marry one of my daughters is you've got to kill 100 Philistines, and you've got to have proof. You've got to bring it back here to me. And so he said, there's no way he can do it. In fact, here's what he says in Scripture. For Saul said to himself, I will not raise my hand against him. Let the Philistines do that. See, in other words, he's saying, you know, I'd like to kill him, 
But I think I've found a crafty way not to have to do that. I'm going to send him into battle and see if, you know, the Philistines will kill him. It's perfect. There's no way that it'll come back on him, right? So he said, just go out and kill a hundred Philistines. Now, David has an army that follows him, and they're enemies of Saul, and so they're going with him. And he goes out there, and he says, you know, you need to bring back a hundred of these bodies. You need to bring back evidence of that, that they're dead. And what does David do? <laughs> he goes out and kills 200. So there, take that. And then it says this, when Saul realized that the Lord was with David and that his daughter Michelle loved David, Saul became still more afraid of him and he remained his enemy the rest of his days. See, David had a big mess on his hands, but it's not his fault. He didn't create it. He's just trying to do what God wants him to do. And the reason he killed the giant, the reason he's leading campaigns is because that's what God's asked him to do. And it's for God's glory. And so this mess just gets messier. And finally, things escalate. One afternoon in the palace, Saul picks up a spear or a javelin and he throws it at David and it catches his clothing on the wall and pins him to the wall and he pulls away from it and he has to flee the palace to save his own life to get out of there and that's what he does you see what Saul wanted was he wanted his son Jonathan to be the next king he wanted to have a legacy but he didn't want David to make it and as long as David was alive that couldn't happen so David leaves the city, goes out into the wilderness to hide, he takes these enemies of Saul he has this big army with him and he goes out there and he's an outlaw, and he's out there because Saul is trying to kill him. And David's story gets even more interesting now, as if it were not interesting already. And it says in 1 Samuel 24, it says this, After Saul returned from pursuing the Philistines, he was told David is in the desert of En Gedi. See, Saul's been out fighting. It's a constant battle between the Israelites and the Philistines. And his men have come back in after battle. And they're bloody, and they're tired, and they're ready to go home, and they're hungry, and they're grieving over the loss of their friends. And somebody gallops up and says, hey, we found David. And we think if you go now, you can catch him. And so it says, so Saul took 3,000 able young men from all Israel and set out to look for David and his men near the crags of the wild goat. Now, let me tell you something. I've been to Israel, and let me tell you, don't ever go in July. That was my first mistake. If it's hot anywhere, it's hot in July in Israel, especially in the desert. In Jericho, it's an oasis. The springs of En Gedi, the Dead Sea, all that stuff is right there together, and it is just uncomfortably hot. And you kind of have to hike up. There's this place that you can hike up through this trail, and there's goats there today. And you hike up, and there's vegetation because there's water running down off the mountain. And you get up there to the top, and there's all these caves and places to hide where David can hide from Saul. And so that's where he's living now because he's got water right there. And, and he can kill something to eat it, but there wasn't a whole lot around, but there was something. And that's where he's having to live now. And so it's just rocks and hills and mountains and caves and shrub grass out there. And every now and then you'll find a spring with spring water, and that's where they're living. And David, you know, knows that Saul has decided this is the opportunity to take care of David. So the story continues, and he said, He came to the sheep pens along the way. A cave was there, and Saul went in to relieve himself. 
Saul gets off his mule. He walks up the trail. He goes in the cave to use the restroom. David and his men are in the back of the cave. When you're in Israel, it's really bright. The sun's really bright, especially out there in the desert, and it's just reflecting off everything. It's like being at the beach. And Saul comes into that dark cave, and David and his men are in the back of the cave. And Saul just goes in a little ways right there at the front of the entrance of the cave, and he can't see back in there. And he, he sits down, turns around, faces out, and he's going to go to the restroom right there. And so it goes on, and it says, uh, what happens is while he's in that position, his men are saying, this is your chance. He says, this is the day the Lord spoke of when he said to you, I will give your enemy into your hands for you to deal with as you wish. And it says, then David crept up unnoticed and cut off the corner of Saul's robe. And it said, afterward, David was conscious stricken for having cut off the corner of his robe. And he said to his men, the Lord forbid that I should do such a thing to my master, the Lord's anointed, or lay my hand on him, for he is the anointed of the Lord. And when he said that, his men were around him. They said, okay, we get it. You don't want to kill him. That's fine. Let us kill him. We don't like him anyway. We're enemies with him. We'll take him out. We'll take care of the dirty work. You just stay back here and hide. We'll take care of it. But it says, with these words, David sharply rebuked his men, and he did not allow them to attack Saul. And Saul left the cave and went his way. Now, if you think that story is good so far, it's getting ready to get really dramatic here. So Saul goes out of the cave, and he walks down the trail, and he gets down there, and he gets on his mule. And about that time when he's getting ready to leave, David appears at the mouth of the cave. And it says this, Then David went out of the cave, and he called out to Saul, My Lord the King. When Saul looked behind him, David bowed down and prostrated himself with his face to the ground. David comes out of that cave, and he calls him. He shows evidence of what he's just done, taking off what's on the corner of his robe. And 3,000 heads turned to look at David. And now everybody in Saul's army knows what just happened. David had a chance to kill Saul. If it had been the other way around, Saul would have killed David. But David's a better man. He won't do it. He says, I'm not going to kill the Lord's anointed. And then he says this. He gives a little speech. He says, this day you have seen with your own eyes how the Lord delivered you into my hands in the cave. Some urged me to kill you, but I spared you. I said, I will not lay my hand on my Lord because he is the Lord's anointed. Not only did I spare your life, I protected you. I did what your bodyguards are supposed to do. I took care of you, what they failed to do. And then it says, he says this, May the Lord judge between you and me, and may the Lord avenge the wrongs you have done to me, but my hand will not touch you. Essentially, he said, I'm not going to listen to what my soldiers say. I'm not going to listen to what the crowd say. I'm not going to listen to what everybody says is popular. I mean, God's already told me he's going to give me this, but I'm not going to act. I'm going to wait and trust God. It takes a lot to do that especially in that situation. And so Saul, what can he do? He's completely humiliated. He's thinking that his army might just anoint David king right away and put him in that position. So Saul says back to David, essentially, today it's evident to all of us that you 
or a better man than me. And God won that battle. And seven chapters later, a random Philistine arrow pierces Saul's army and he dies. And David becomes the king of Israel. See, he could have killed him. But he said, no, I can't do it. I'm not going to put my hand on the Lord's anointed. I'm just going to trust God in his time, in his way. He's going to take care of this. Now, that brings us to the first thing I want you to see. Every mess comes with a list of bad options that will make your mess messier. Everybody here today has got a mess. We've said that all through this series, and we're trying to fix that mess, and it's just getting messier and messier. Your response to the mess is really the real story, and it's part of your permanent story for life. And that brings me to the next question. What story do you want to tell? The people will ask, David, how'd you become king? Is he going to lie the rest of his life and say, well, I, I killed Saul? He won't, he won't tell them that, so he'll say, well, God just put me in that position. No. He said, I'm going to spare him, and God will do what God's going to do whenever he wants to do it. Don't choose an option in life that will make you a liar for life. This was David's dilemma. He had every excuse in the world. He could use Saul's bad behavior as an excuse for him to behave badly, but he doesn't do that. Think of the story and the opportunity. David, what do you want to tell? What do you want to do? He's opted for virtue over expediency, and he's done the right thing. And the third thing I want us to see is that Jesus doesn't just fix our messes. He says, follow me. You see, I've told you earlier in this series, you know, Jesus says, look, I'm not just going to show up every now and then when you got a real big problem. He said, just turn it, fix it, but then leave. He said, I want to do life with you. I want us to go through life together. I want to be there for you all the time. I just want you to follow me and let me fight the battle. Let me take care of the mess, and I'll take care of you if you'll just trust me. And so for all of us, we can leverage our mess into a message. Here's what I did with my life to make a mess. And here's what God did with that mess. And I'm going to spend the rest of my life sharing my testimony and, and just worshiping and exalting God. And I'm going to try to tell as many people as I possibly can what God will do for them. Because they got a mess too. And God helped me, and I just want God to help them as well. If you're a dad, what kind of story are you going to tell to your kids and your grandkids? If you're a mom, what kind of story are you going to tell? If you're a Christian, he says, you follow the Savior. That's the way to address the mess. Jesus says, follow me. What does it mean to follow Jesus? I read a beautiful story years ago about a mom. She wrote about her little boy. Ben, he was five years old, and they'd been to church. And the preacher preached a sermon, and he talked about the importance of giving your life to Christ. And little Ben really tuned in, and he listened to that message. And the family was sitting around the breakfast table the next day, and they were talking, and talking about what it means to be a Christian. And little Ben announced that he was ready to make his commitment, five years old. 
And he got up from the table and, and he went upstairs to his room. His parents decided to follow up there to see what he was doing. They thought maybe he was down on his knees praying to accept Jesus Christ into his life. When they got up there, they found him with his Lion King pajamas, putting them in his Sesame Street suitcase. And they said, Ben, what are you doing? He said, I'm packing. They said, why? He said, to go to heaven. In his little mind, giving his life to Christ was no small step. It meant his willingness to leave his family immediately to go to heaven and be with Jesus. That's what it means to follow Jesus, to just give up, to surrender, to say, Lord, I can't fix it. It's too much of a mess for me. I've tried. I failed. And I'm tired of trying and failing. And I need you. Let's pray together. Father, today I pray that we would be honest. And I pray that we would just look at our lives and we would see who you are and what you can do. And we would see what we have done. Today, Lord, I pray that no one will leave this place with a mess. We don't have to carry it anymore. We don't have to take it with us. We don't have to think about it night and day. We don't have to focus on it. We don't have to try to fix it. All we have to do is surrender our lives to you and just trust you. And, Lord, those times before when you've given us victory, those times in our lives when we were facing a big challenge and you came through for us and they gave us confidence in you in the moment. And every time that happened, it just built and built and built. Lord, today I pray that we would lean on, not on our confidence, but on our confidence in you. You are a great and mighty God and there is nothing that you cannot do. You love us more than anyone you understand us better than anyone. And all you want to do is take our mess and make it a message so we can share it with others and we can live with you forever. Not just fix it today and be in the same mess tomorrow, but we can follow you. We can walk with you. And we'll give you all the glory and praise and we'll spend our lives and all eternity just celebrating what you've done and what you're doing for others if you give us the chance to share. We thank you in Jesus' name. And all God's children said,